This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. A guest speaker is featured on this message. Good morning. How's everybody doing? It is great to be together. My name is Bob Hughes. I'm, uh, I'm almost part of the pastoral team. I'm a, uh, a pastoral intern. So I am, and they also, I'm also what they call a bivocational elder. Isn't that a cool term? It means basically that I've got one leg up to the hip in uh, the marketplace and the other leg up to the hip in church life, which is really what every one of you are supposed to have, but I get a cool title. So uh, I get to say bivocational elder. It's kind of cool. Hey, we had uh, a couple of months ago, uh, my wife Sharon's cousin, uh, David, came to visit us uh, from Arizona. He's a great guy. And uh, so we spent an evening. Sharon's brother, Tom, her two sisters also live in town. And uh, so, you know, everybody crashes at our place. And we just had a, a wonderful time together. Well, as the evening gets going, David pulls out this DVD. And it's all these old 9 millimeter movies of 45 years ago, family reunions and vacations together and all that. So this whole evening is this really just an incredible time of the emotions swinging. One minute, you know, everybody's laughing hysterically. The next minute, somebody's grabbing a tissue to dry their tears. You know, the next minute, look at you, you're such a dork. Look at you. Look at you. And, uh, you know, just the, the, the stories start to come out of, of family memories and those the stories that our family all has. And uh, anyway, it was just a wonderful time. We talked of lives that had gone well, talked about lives that didn't go well, people that made a profound impact on the family and those that, that really failed in their calling. And uh, the thing that was cool about it is it, it made me think that, that really as we study the book of Acts together, as we've been going through this now for a couple of months, that's what it's supposed to be like when we study the book of Acts together. We're, we're looking back at our heritage. We're, we're looking back to great, great, great grandpa and grandma and the uncles and the aunts and the heritage that gives us identity and informs who we are. We're able to look back and see their priorities, to see how God had called them and used them and how they saw reality and how they threw their lives into what really mattered eternally. And the cool thing is we can look at their lives, evaluate our lives, and be sure that we're, that we're aligned right, that we're seeing ourselves the same way that they were. And, uh, you know, it, it's an amazing thing to connect with our spiritual heritage, the, the body of Christ, the church. It's, we don't realize, you know, we meet here, we're just a bunch of folks. It seems like no big deal. We're going to go out for lunch afterwards or go over to a friend's. And it can seem like it's no big deal. And yet Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. The church is the foundation and the pillar of the truth from God's perspective. It's the single most important thing going on in the world. And though our natural families are wonderful, I, I've got a, just met a friend here, I'm, I'm the, you know, the line starts behind me for the richest man on earth. I've got five wonderful sons, I've got 13 grandkids, I am blessed big time, and our family means the world to us, and families are designed by God to be profoundly important where our lives are formed, and our children and our grandchildren's lives are formed in our families. It's so important, and yet we've got to understand that the church is the only heritage from which Christians derive permanent and eternal identity. That's who we are. 
the family, our marriages. There's going to come a day when we stand before the Lord, we're not going to be married anymore. We're going to be brothers, and my wife and I will be brothers and sisters in the Lord. It'll be great. But we're not going to be married anymore. The, the reason our family had a unique meaning was because it was an opportunity to equip our children and live out the gospel in a way that caused people to have questions where we could point to the model behind the model of our families, which is the gospel and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we continue this morning, we're going to jump into Acts chapter 12. But as we do so, I want to encourage you to look deeply into the book of Acts with us and to evaluate who we are, who we're supposed to be as a church, and to, to clarify what life's about, what we're living for, what really matters. So let me just pray for us and we'll jump in this morning. I'm going to just pray uh, Paul's prayer from Ephesians 2. It's just one of my favorite prayers and I pray it all the time for the church so I just pray it publicly like, like I would at home. But Lord, I pray this morning that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ as we gather together this morning. Lord, do what only you can do Lord, I pray that the eyes of our understanding would be opened. Open our eyes, Lord, that we would know the hope of your calling to us. How every part of our life matters before you. How you've placed us where you've placed us in life for your glory. Lord, and and the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, let that be at work in us. We can't live out the life you've called us to live in our own strength, Lord. Please pour out your Spirit. Empower us. Strengthen us for your glory, Lord, that that we know the inheritance that you've provided for us through the cross, the riches of your grace that's been lavished upon us, Lord. We give you this time. We thank you for this wonderful church, Lord. Build this church for your glory. We ask you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 12 is a pretty substantive chapter, 25 verses. So we're going to break it down a little bit. We'll take a section and make some comments and hit another section and see if we can't get through this together. Our our title this morning is, Who's Got the Power? Who's Got the Power? And the subcategory for people that like subtitles is, Honor Christ, You Win. Oppose Christ, You Lose. Okay, so let's read together. Acts 12, begin at verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So we kick things off here with King Herod violently opposing the Lord and his church. Last week, Craig talked about the hand of the Lord being extended through his church, through his people. Well, as we turn the page into chapter 12, we see another hand at work. We see Herod has extended his hand of power to do violence to the church. And the church's persecution began with religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, uh, a zealot named Saul who persecuted the church. But now the stakes have kicked up big time and the persecution is being extended by the government leadership, Herod, the king, and ultimately Caesar, the ruler of the empire. And we see this progression from stoning of the Hebrews to the sword of government, the sword of the king. There's several Herods in the New Testament and this one that we're, we're looking at here in chapter 12 is Herod Agrippa I. He is the cunning, power-thirsty king of the Jews that's appointed by Rome. 
Herod Agrippa knew a lot about the Christians. His grandfather was Herod the Great, the threatened king who asked the wise men to report when they found the Messiah, and the one who ordered the slaughter of the innocent children in Bethlehem. Herod Agrippa's uncle is Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist rather than be embarrassed in front of his dinner guests and was involved in the trial of Jesus wanting to see a miracle or two uh, before he had his soldiers robe him and crown him and beat him and mock him before sending him back to Pilate. Herod's extended family is despised by the Jews who resent having a Roman Gentile ruling over them. And knowing this, uh, Herod's a very shrewd political guy he, he intentionally persecutes the Christians to curry favor with the Jewish leadership. And now that the Gentiles are openly a part of the church, his plan is even more agreeable to the Jews who have no tolerance for pagan dogs. Herod's killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That means he was beheaded. And uh, James as it says, is the brother of John. John's the one who wrote the book of John, who wrote the three epistles of John, also wrote the book of Revelation. James is one of the sons of Zebedee. His dad owned a thriving fishing business along the Sea of Galilee. And uh, James was called personally by Jesus to leave his business and leave his dad to follow Jesus and become a fisher of men. And he's also one of the three who formed Jesus' closest inner circle along with Peter and John. Uh, he, he's known as one of the sons of thunder. I like that one. He's, he's a guy who's got a big mouth. I, I like the fact that the Lord likes people with big mouths. He's, uh, he's an intense, passionate guy, which I like as well. And we'll all remember the story about James's mom who wanted to you know, kind of help her kids in the new kingdom business with Jesus who approached Jesus and said, you know, what do we need to do to work a deal here and get James on one side and John on the other side? And Jesus asked James a, a very uh, profound question. And knowing that there's no glory in God's kingdom apart from suffering, he asked James, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And James, I'm sure like you or I, think, yeah, whatever I need to do, sure, I I can drink it. And Jesus responds to him, you shall drink the cup that I drink. And as prophesied, uh, James honors the Lord Jesus in martyrdom by drinking the cup of suffering. Uh, James is the second martyr in the church after Stephen, and he's the first apostle to give his life for Christ. If if you didn't know this, all of the original apostles were martyred for their faith, except for John, who was banished to the island of Patmos. Uh, Not only does Herod behead James, but seeing that it pleases the Jews, he also seizes Peter, planning to murder him as well, putting an end to all this religious upheaval while currying favor with his political constituents. He just needs to get through the Passover feast so he can get it done because the courts are closed for the holidays. The church here is under serious persecution from the hand of Herod. James is dead. Peter's in prison waiting the same fate. And it's difficult for us as 20th century American Christians to fathom such a thing. We read this, it seems like ancient history. It, it's somehow hard to breach the gap that, that there could actually be a government that's involved in killing off your church leaders. And yet, persecution and martyrdom have always been a normal part of historic Christianity and still is today in much of the world, except for what's currently going on in, in, civilized, in the civilized West. Persecution and martyrdom are powerful instruments that God actually employs at times to purify and strengthen the church 
and as a profound witness to an onlooking world. Jesus tells us, uh, Jesus speaks to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount about persecution. And he says, blessed are those. And the word, the word blessed, it means you're to be envied. This is, some, this is something special. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow, there's a great reward. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's, that's Matthew 5. And then in Galatians, Peter uh, writes from prison to the Philippians years later, but now he's in prison suffering persecution. In, in Philippians 1.14, he says, talking about the, the good that comes out of the fact that he is being persecuted. He says, Most of the brethren have been made confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Amazing what, how encouraged he is, what the byproduct is of his being in prison, which we think, how can anything good come out of that? Persecution shocks us out of our complacency and helps us to clearly see the reality of eternity. Persecution strips away the fear of man and the petty pursuits of our life. Persecution provokes and ignites the people of God with zeal to declare the gospel. Tertullian, who is one of the early church fathers who died in 225, said this. He said, We multiply wherever we're mowed down. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. And Jerome, who first translated the Bible into Latin in 325, said, The church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others, by enduring outrage, not by inflicting it, Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. So we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter persecution. Actually, we should be concerned about the legitimacy of our witness if we don't experience persecution in some way at some level. So Peter's in prison again. This is not the first time Peter's been in prison In Acts 4, uh, Peter's put in prison with John after the uproar resulting from the healing of a lame beggar. In Acts 5, Peter and many of the other apostles are arrested and put in prison by the high priests. But you remember the story, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and told him to get back out to the temple and keep preaching. Herod is taking no chances with this prized prisoner. Peter is placed behind three specific levels of barrier in the prison. Security is doubled over what they do with normal prisoners. Peter has assigned to him four squadrons of soldiers, 16 soldiers total, four squads of four, six-hour shifts watching him. There's four soldiers in each shift, two at the door of his cell, two in the cell with him, one chained to each arm. And Herod is clearly utilizing every weaponry in his arsenal to put an end to this nonsense of another king who has somehow risen from the dead. Looking at verse 5, you see... uh, one of the Bible's coolest words. It's the word but. But. I think God loves that word. I love that word. It says, But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. God has entrusted the church with weapons of his own. The supernatural weapon of prayer. Well, I hear that word prayer. I don't know if you're like me. Guys, I think you're like me. You think, 
I mean, is that, that's all we got? That's, that's what our deal is? We've got prayer. I mean, isn't that something that grandma does? Is, uh, I mean, is, that's what's going to get it done here? And you know, we'll see, you see lots of controversy throughout the body of Christ. How do we deal with political issues and governmental issues? And you know, there's a whole camp of people that say, hey, the, what we, need, we need political power is what we're, we're needing here. Uh, we need to build a Christian political base. We need to vote out the old regime. We're going to vote in a godly guy. Um, you've got another swing, swing the, the pendulum another direction. You've got the people say, hey, we're getting out of here. We're going to the mountains. We're going to take freeze-dried food and going to build me a farm up in the country and get away from it all. And you can swing it another direction. And you've got, you know, the crazies who are saying, hey, we've got to face for, meet force with force. We need a Christian militia. That's, what, that's what's going to get this thing done. And it's funny, you know, you see this dualism where when it comes to church stuff and family things, we, we tend to think a little bit more biblically, but we think about how God changes affairs in the world or government things or even issues in our work. We, and we th- we're, if we're not careful, we, we just totally drop all of our biblical thinking. We, we become what's called dualists. We, we've got, we're double-minded. We, we see two different things. I, I'm a small business owner. I'm Christian guy, I've been building a business, just about to celebrate our 20th anniversary as a business, which is a miracle. Um, but I'm trying to build a Christian, I'm a Christian guy, I'm trying to build a business based on the Word of God, trying to do all the aspects of business that way. Guess what that means? That means I pray. We have a leadership meeting, I'm going to pray. We've got a team leadership meeting, I'm going to pray. Well, this would shock you, and for the, for the most part, I mean, only God knows, but I think most of my people are Christians. It's not a prerequisite to work for us, and, but obviously I want to hire people that God's at work in, and that, I think that's an advantage, and yet you would, you would be amazed at the number of conversations where I've had people come up to me and just thought it was inappropriate in a work setting to pray. That, uh, you know, I've had Christian co-workers who have come up to me and said, look, you know, Bob, thanks, you know, appreciate your zealous guy, all that great stuff, whatever. But this is, you know, this isn't church. This is the real world. This is about business. It's about profits and strategy and marketing. And, you know, pray at church. Pray with your wife. Pray for your kids. But can we get some business done here? I mean, this is, this, that stuff doesn't work here. Well, I'm sorry, but God's word uh, states different. And uh, I'm, I'm sticking with that. I'm going to stick with God. I mean, one of my favorite verses is uh, the last verse in Romans 11. We all know Romans 12. I urge you, therefore, brethren, Romans 12, 1 and 2, urge you, brothers, present your body, living sacrifice. We know that one. Scoot one verse back, and it's my favorite verse. It says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a great verse. And what it means is that in every situation, in every scenario of life, in every context of life, everything is a divine opportunity from Him to bring glory to Himself. And that the wisdom and grace and skill that's needed in every one of those situations that face the challenge of the day comes through Him. Which leads to dependence and affection and gratitude back to Him in all things. That's the way life's supposed to work. We see it as from Him, through Him, and to Him in all things. Philippians 4, 6 says that in everything, through prayer and supplication, we make our request known to God. Well, yeah, what about the political thing? We've got a problem with, with the king in everything. God's weaponry is way more powerful than we realize. We need to engage it. We need to learn about it. We need to become skilled in the tools that God has placed in our hands. And really, the... If you want to learn God's unfailing strategy to change the world and change a country, it's in Second Chronicles 7.14. It's, it's the verse. And it's interesting. It says nothing about the problems in the culture. It isn't about this people group that's a problem. It isn't about this sinful category of people. It isn't about that. 
the problem in all of it from God's perspective is the church. And he says in 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive them their sins and I'll heal their land. That's God's formula if we want to change the world. God's only solution for the world's many problems is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ modeled and proclaimed through a praying church. So the church is gathered in earnest prayer. The Greek word for earnest, I'll spare you, I won't try and say it, but it means to stretch your hands to God. Earnest prayer. They were gathered in earnest prayer. It means unceasing, intense, desperate prayer. They'd been praying day and night ever since Peter was arrested and thrown into prison, crying out to God to intervene. Later in verse 12, it says that many had gathered to pray. They understood the priority. It was all hands on deck. These people knew how to pray. They knew how to change things. They knew how to come before the Lord the way the Lord had taught them to do it. Verse, uh, back to verse 6 through 11. Excuse me. I, I moved ahead too quickly. Understanding how the church prays in this situation should provoke personal evaluation. Um, It should provoke, a healthy exercise is to think through how we believe life works. How does life work? How do we accomplish what we're supposed to accomplish for the glory of God in this life? How does it work? And we need to evaluate whether we are fundamentally self-dependent people or whether we are God-dependent people. Dependent people pray a lot. Self-sufficient people, self-dependent people probably don't. And our, our prayer life tells a great deal about who we are and who is really directing our lives. Now, verse 6 through 11. Now Herod was about to bring him out. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when he went out and followed him, and he didn't know what was being done by the angel was real, for he thought that he was seeing a vision. And when he had passed through the first and the second guard, then came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So we're back in the dungeon. Peter is sound asleep. This is a profound thing. He's in the dungeon, and Peter is sound asleep. I I just, I mean, would you be, if, if this is you, are you asleep right now? I think I'm pacing the cell. I'm trying to. I'm trying to see if there's a crack in the wall someplace somewhere I can evaporate through. Is there some? Is there something I haven't thought of? Is there something? Is there some help? Is there some means? Is there some strategy? Some tactic? Peter is scheduled for a kangaroo court first thing in the morning, followed by execution. He's three levels down in the dank inner sanctum of Herod's prison. 
Sentries are at the door. Soldiers are chained to both wrists. And Peter is snoring and sleeping like a baby. And the question is, how the heck can Peter sleep? How, how, how is that possible? Thank you, Lord, for water. What is it that Peter knows that enables him to sleep so soundly? How can this be? Well, he knows a number of things that we're supposed to know as well. He may know them on a deeper level. Okay. He knows, first of all, that this world is not his real home. That he belongs in heaven. He's a heavenly man. That's who he is. He's living a life on the dot, but reality is the line of eternity. And so his hope and his confidence and his identity is in the line, not in the dot and the values of the dot. He knows that his greatest fear the fear of standing before a holy God and giving account for his sin has been settled at the cross by the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died for his sins. He knows that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he also knows, he's got a little trick up his sleeve, he knows that his time hasn't come yet and that he's not going to lose his head in the morning. And you could say, well, wait a minute, how... How can he possibly know that? He's in prison. How how can he know that? Well, rewind. Want to go back to the story after the resurrection when Jesus appears to the disciples along the Sea of Galilee. He cooks breakfast for them. Remember the story. He speaks to the disciples. He speaks to Peter personally. And one of the things that he says to Peter is this. When you are old... Someone else will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And so Peter knows that in God's sovereign plan, he's not dying in the morning. He is supposed to grow old. God has more work for him to do. Uh, But the point is this. He's got a day too. James had his day. Peter's got his day. He may have a few more days. In the dot, compared to the line... It's brief. It isn't much. See if I can get that to work a little better. It's brief. I may have 20 more years. I hope so. You may have 40. We may get hit by the semi on the way out. Nobody knows. All we know is life is brief. And we need to live with... God in His sovereignty has chosen our days. We need to live wisely. We need to see what matters in light of the line. And live accordingly. Suddenly, things get supernatural in the cell. An angel of the Lord stands next to Peter. There's light shining in the cell. Peter is sleeping so soundly that the angel has got to jab him in the side to wake him up. The iron chains, I can't imagine what iron chains on your wrist must must feel like, but the iron chains supernaturally break apart. They fall off Peter's wrists. Peter is half asleep. He's dreaming. It is obvious Peter is not a morning person. Uh, He is so groggy. Literally, the angel has to tell him how to dress himself. Uh, Put on your clothes. That's it, Peter. Good job. Now your sandals. At a boy. Okay, now your robe. Okay, here we go. You ready to go? Off they go. Past the sentry. Out the cell. Up past the first guard. Up past the second guard. Finally, they come to the main huge gate leading out of the prison, which opens automatically for them, like I'm pushing the remote of my car pulling into my, my driveway. It's interesting. We look at this story, and uh, this thing is like riddled with miracles. God is at work it, all over the place. And yet it's interesting that, that Peter is still required to do the ordinary stuff. Do you notice that? Where miracles are needed, we get miracles. 
The angel appears, the iron chain drops off, we stroll through three tiers of security, multi-ton iron gate, auto opens. Where miracles aren't needed, God works through Peter's natural abilities. Get up. Yeah, put your clothes on. Put on your shoes and coat. Follow me. Come on, let's go. And it's the same for us, isn't it? I mean, we need to know that life is part of God's supernatural plan for us is to do what seems obvious. Do those ordinary things that somehow God is supernaturally involved in and yet know that when we need miracles, we, we follow a God of miracles and the miracles are there. So you can anticipate them. Peter finally comes to himself and he realizes that the Lord has rescued him from the hand of Herod. Back to verse 12 through 19. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but she ran in to report that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, no, he's dead, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison and said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and didn't find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea, went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. Peter is just out of prison. What does he do? He goes to Mary's house. Well, Mary, there's a lot to learn about Mary. Mary is, is a woman of significant financial means. She's probably a widow. Uh, she has a large, I'm sure, beautiful home. There's a, I assume, gorgeous courtyard around her home and a wall around it. Uh, Mary is mother to John Mark, who is first introduced to us here in chapter 12. We'll learn more about him next chapter. He's a young disciple of Paul and Barnabas, who later in Acts will hear a story of where there's a falling out between him and Paul, which at the end of the book of Acts is actually restored. But God profoundly uses John Mark, and we know him best from the book of Mark, which he wrote. Mary is also Barnabas's aunt, and Craig talked about brother encouragement. Mary is brother encouragement's aunt, and so we see that the gospel has a profound effect through Mary's extended family. And it makes sense for Peter to go to Mary's house because Mary has a serious gift of hospitality. Her home and all that she has is leveraged for the service of the church. Peter knows there's always people at Mary's house, okay? Um, and this may, may not be the first time that we've been to Mary's house if, as we've read scripture. Um, some scholars might believe that there's a fair chance that the large upper room in Mary's house is where Jesus met with the disciples for the Last Supper. It may also be the room where the 120 met before they were filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and probably a place uh, where the apostles met and where leaders from out of town came and went to, to have hospitality and care and to plan and strategize what God had called them to do in planting new churches. So next we come to one of the funniest stories in Scripture, normally you don't think the Bible is a, a, a book of funny stories, but how, isn't it wonderful that in the middle of all of this intensity, the Lord has a sense of humor, and we we hear the story of Peter knocking at the door. You know, he, 
He has just gotten out of prison. I'm sure he is running down the street. He's anticipating Herod's soldiers on his heels. He's looking up and down. I'm going to get to Mary's house. He gets to Mary's house. He's he's knocking at that door. And it says that Rhoda, one of, of the servant girls there, hears Peter's voice. She knows Peter's voice. Peter has hung out at Mary's many times before, it sounds like. And uh, she is like many of us in a moment like that. I don't know if the distance to the gate and the distance to the room where everybody was praying was about the same distance, but she's beside herself. She hears Peter's voice. She knows everybody's been praying, and she chooses to go tell everybody that Peter's at the door. So rather than opening the gate, she runs in where everybody's gathering and, and lets everybody know Peter's here. Peter's here. He's at the gate. The Lord's answered our prayer. It's Peter. He's at the gate. And of course, the response of these godly men and women of faith who've been praying for days respond saying, you are crazy. Uh, You're out of your mind. He's dead. Lord, hear our prayer. Rescue Peter. Peter's at the door. Let me in. Hey, is anybody there? He's dead. It's his ghost. It's a mistake. It's something. I don't know what it is, but it can't be Peter. Honestly, it's, it's hilarious. Peter keeps knocking. He's looking up and down the street. Are the soldiers going to appear any moment? And finally, the whole gang comes down from the prayer meeting and they crack open the door and there's Peter. And they're all like, you know. Honestly, this, the whole story, it rem- This totally dates me, and I apologize if some of you don't know this illustration, but some of you do. It reminds me of an old Cheech and Chong routine. (laughs) And it's the story, it's the the comedy routine of the guy who's got the stuff, you know, and he's going, hey, hey, open the door, man, it's me, Dave, open the door. And the guy who's stoned out of his wits comes to the door, Dave, 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 Dave's not here. Hey, no, it's me, it's me, Dave, open the door, man. Dave, yeah, he asked me to open the door. I got the stuff. I think the cops are watching me. Dave, Dave's not here. So anyway, <laughs> you had to, uh, as, they, as David Crosby once said, it, you had to be at Woodstock to know about it. But if you were at Woodstock, you wouldn't remember. So there you go. That's one of, that's one of those things. So sorry. So... All these days, the church has been crying out to God. The Lord has miraculously answered their prayers. And their response is, I don't believe it. You are crazy. And uh, isn't that exactly like us? Isn't that exactly the way we are? We pray, God actually answers our prayers, and we can't believe it. Uh, How appropriate to laugh at ourselves as I'm sure the Lord does, and yet to be in awe of God's great kindness to us, to take, you know, our lame, weak, half-believing prayers and somehow use them, and uh, how good the Lord is, how wonderful that is. And we need to celebrate our crazy prayers, don't we? We need to talk about those crazy, I can't believe it prayers. I know one for me, really one of the big ones in my whole life was when my dad came to know the Lord. I prayed for my dad for 30 years. And uh, by the grace of God, two weeks before he died, he got saved, man. And it was the real deal. I w- if, if I wasn't there and you told me that it happened, I'd say, no way, you're crazy. It couldn't have happened. This church... Is, has foundings on a crazy answer to prayer. A uh, group of guys getting together, planning a church, fistful of people here starting this thing. One day we're going to need a place to build a church. Let's pray for land. Well, where do you want to pray for land? I think Craig says, let's just pray right in the middle of town. Somebody else in the room says, buddy, I appreciate that, but you don't like that land at Maine and Maine? Like, like that's the big buck land. It ain't going to happen. We need to be praying for, you know, out in the pasture land someplace or whatever. Well, let's just pray. Let's believe God on that, you know. Well, guess what happens? Some amazing, gracious guy donates land 
next to, right in the center of Frisco Square. Guess what? The street's called Grace Street and Church Street. Is that something? Is that real? No, you're a kid. That didn't happen, did it? You're lying. You're crazy. That's not true. Isn't that how you feel at that stuff? No way. You're crazy. I've got a friend who's part of the church, the first meeting. Gives me a call a couple of weeks ago. The tranny in his truck has gone bad. They're struggling. They just moved. Money's tight. So I pray the prayer of faith thing. You know, okay, let's pray, brother. Let's believe God's going to work this thing out. You're going to look back. God's going to use this thing. It may get an answer to prayer. It may be a pain in the neck. But God's at work. Let's trust that and let's pray. So we pray the prayer of faith. Takes the truck in. Gets the thing repaired. Expects the repair to be stupid expensive goes in to pick up the car, and somebody else had paid the bill. He calls me up and says, Hey, there, I guess what happened? And God, I said, No way. You're lying, right? You're crazy. That's not true. <laughs> Last week, I've got a guy, we're having a leadership development meeting in Virginia. Guy comes in as a part of our team there. Had a struggle with one of his days. Needed another account. Needed, needed work. We all get together, we pray for the guy. Turns out the very same day, somebody else on the team got so much responsibility in another area that he had to release one of his days. The guy gets a, a whole other day of work, calls back, you're kidding me. No, you're joking, right? You're crazy. That's not really true. Isn't, it, isn't, it, isn't the Lord awesome that he takes people like us with, as I said, lame, weak, half-believing prayer lives, and yet... Though we're weak in his omnipotence, his glory, he delights to answer our prayers. And it ought to provoke us to to really learn what the weaponry of prayer is all about. All right. Back in prison, things are up for grabs. Uh, Peter's nowhere to be found. Herod's policy is if a prisoner escapes... The guards who were responsible for him get his sentence, and so all of the guards are executed. Back to verse 20 through 25, come down the home stretch here. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose name was Mark. So here we see Herod's demise. For some reason, Herod is upset with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, These cities need to make it work. They're dependent on Judean grain for their survival. And in like, in like most political situations, the goal is to try, try and find somebody who's connected someplace, right? And the somebody here is Herod's personal attendant, a man named Blastus, who they probably for a price puts in a good word to the king. The conflict is resolved and a new accord is celebrated with a huge breakfast event where the king is honored by the people of Tyre and Sidon for his great generosity, and Herod then speaks to the people, leveraging the moment to do some PR with the crowd. Okay? Jewish historian Josephus records the same event, and it's, it's amazing to see how non-Christian historians record the exact same events to verify the legitimacy of the historical record of the book of Acts. But uh, apparently Herod really seized the opportunity with this gathering, clothing himself with a majestic robe, which was woven of spun silver somehow. They took silver and, and wove it into his, his royal robe. And the event was held in an amphitheater that faced west, 
so that as the sun came up in the east and blazed squarely on the king, uh, it, 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 it just was amazing as he entered and took his throne. And Josephus writes here that Herod, clad in a garment woven completely of silver so that its texture was indeed wondrous, entered the theater at daybreak. There, the silver illuminated by the touch of the first rays of the sun was wondrously radiant, and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in all those who gazed intently upon it. So, according to Josephus, Herod's strategy is very effective. The sun's reflection on his robe is causing it to glow and shimmer as if he is indeed divinity. And uh, either his speech went really well, or the people of Tyre and Sidon were prepped to play to Herod's need for glory. Uh, Whatever it was, the crowd goes wild at the end of his speech, and they shout, the voice of God and not a man. And uh, no surprise to us at this point, learning a little bit about Herod. uh, Herod believed what they said about him. And... uh, though it was only for a brief moment. Okay? The angel that struck Peter on the side to wake him and rescue him from Herod now strikes Herod, but this time to strike him down. Herod is eaten up by worms and dies. And how appropriate it is that Herod's death being consumed by worms, pretty graphic, portrays who he really was on the inside. And uh, the Roman-appointed king of the Jews has come to a gruesome end while the word of God grows and multiplies. As chapter 12 comes to a close, we clearly see who's got the power, don't we? At the beginning of the chapter, Herod's on a rampage, violently persecuting the church at the end of the chapter Herod is struck down by the angel of the Lord at the beginning of the chapter James is dead Peter's in prison Herod appears to be triumphing at the end of the chapter Herod is eaten by worms Peter is free and the word of God is triumphing those who honor Christ win those who oppose Christ lose. Let's pray together. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.